it's great to see everyone here in person and all of you joining us online. And great to see everyone <coughs> campuses in Robinson and Washington and Wilkinsburg, uh, you guys in Ross Traver and always down in Florida in DeBerry. So um, we're working through some stuff, right? Working through it together. And we appreciate uh, all of you uh, uh, being patient as we figure all this out. We have a response team that meets every Monday and tries to figure out the latest uh, word from the governor and restrictions and everything we have going on. So uh, just hang with us and we'll be uh, uh, keep communicating to you. Every Wednesday now, that during the summer, every Wednesday, uh, Dave and I will be doing uh, 1215 on Wednesdays. And we're going to talk a little bit about the theology of masks. How's that? The theology of masks on Wednesday. So you can join us at 1215 uh, just for a short little devo. Uh, you can join us later as we post that. And uh, we want to we want to think through biblically uh, what's going on in our in our world and in our church. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we open his word tonight. Father, we thank you that you're a God who loves us and cares for us. Nothing surprises you. Uh, nothing uh, nothing um, concerns you because you're in charge of it all. And we know you. And we want to know you better. And we want to know you more intimately. And we want to, to understand you so we can better understand who, who you are and who we are and then how we can live intentionally for you. So be with us, Lord, as we uh, start a new series, as we, uh, as we focus on, on, on your person. And just pray, Father, that you would uh, bless our time uh, tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so if you are at the Bible Chapel any length of time, whether you've been joining us online or whether you're here uh, in one of our services, you know that uh, we have these five essentials. We call them our five values. You can say it with me. You ready? Word, worship, connect, serve, share. You guys have them down one more time. You ready? Word, worship, connect, serve, share. And it always starts with, our values always starts with the word. And uh, you'll hear Dave or I saying uh, as we go through uh, uh, sermons and series, we need to be in the Word on a regular Nothing is a substitute for being in the Word on a regular basis. There's no substitute for that. So we even have a Devo that goes out every morning. I think it's sent out at 4.30 in the morning, and you can have it in your inbox, and, and you can read a passage of Scripture. You can read a little Devo there, right? And then you can go and follow through, read through Scripture. That's been our challenge this year is to read through Scripture. If you don't have that, let me know, more at biblechapel.org. We'll make sure you're on that list. We're now, if you're doing that, if you're tracking with us, we're in the middle of Isaiah, in the middle of Isaiah. Now, here's a question. Got to be honest. When you read the Bible, particularly if you're in the middle of Isaiah, do you sometimes find it a little confusing? Anybody willing to raise their hand on that? A little confusing, right? How does all this work? What is going on here? I can't always understand what's going on. So, there's this book called uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer just died. He was 93 years old. He just died this past week. Tremendous theologian. And he writes this book called Knowing God. And listen to what he says. I love what he, what he says uh, when he talks about, when we talk about reading the Bible and understanding the Bible. See if you, anyone can relate to this. I certainly can. Packer writes this. They tell us that the Bible is the word of God, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. They tell us 
we shall find in it the knowledge of God and his will for our lives. We believe them rightly for what they say is true. So we take our Bibles and we start to read them and we read steadily and thoughtfully for we are in earnest. We really do want to know God. But as we read, we get more and more puzzled. Though fascinating, we're not being fed. Our reading is not helping us. It's leaving us bewildered. And if truth be told, somewhat depressed. We find ourselves wondering whether Bible reading is worth going on with. You don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever asked that question? Is it worth going on with? Packer says, what's the trouble? Well, basically, he says it's this. Our Bible reading takes us into what is for us quite a new world, namely the Near Eastern world with all its thousands of years ago, primitive and barbaric, agricultural and unrecognized. It is in that world that the action of the Bible story is played out. It's all intensely interesting, but it seems so very far away. It all belongs to that world, not this world. And we cannot see how these worlds link up. And hence, again and again, we find ourselves feeling that the things we read about in the Bible can have no application for us. And when, as so often these things are in themselves thrilling and glorious, our sense of being excluded from them depresses us considerably. But how, he asks, can this sense of remoteness from the biblical experience of God be overcome. Think about that. How can the sense of remoteness of the biblical experience of God be overcome? Many things might be said, but the critical point is surely this. The sense of remoteness is an illusion which springs from seeking the link between our situation and that of the various Bible characters in the wrong place. And then... Packer goes on to say, the link of understanding Scripture is God himself. It's his story. It's not Abraham's story or Isaac's story or David's story. It's God's story. And when we truly understand, Packer says, and I totally agree, when we truly understand who God is, now the Bible begins to make sense. When we truly understand the author and how he works in every story, in every situation, we're not trying to apply ourselves to Abraham and how he responded. Abraham is a character in God's story. We're trying to figure out who this God is and how we can relate to him. That's going to be our summer series. We're going to focus on the person of God. Knowing God, know God, real tough questions, real answers. And we're going to see that God has to be seen. The first thing I want us to see is God has to be seen in whole, not in parts. And so when we look at God and we read through the Bible, we see all these things about God. We learn that he is 
all-powerful. Uh, there's, there's nothing he can't do. We learn that he is omnipresent. He is, he is present everywhere at the same time in his full being. We learn that he is all-knowing. He knows everything there is to know about everything there is to know. He's immutable. He never changes. Think about that. The same God you read about in Genesis 1 never changes. He's merciful, he's love, he's holy, he's just. We go through all those attributes, and the thing I want us to see from the very beginning, and we'll be hitting this time and time again, is all those attributes have to be seen in a whole, not in parts. And we can conclude the wrong thinking about God and who he is when we start pulling those attributes out. And so people do that, right? We have all these attributes of God, and so a person will say, I'll look at the next slide, love. God is love. I read that in the New Testament. God is love. And so they pull out love, and when you pull out love, then you begin to make some wrong conclusions. If God is love, then everyone must go to heaven at the end. If God is love, then there is no retribution for sin. If God is love, he is going to overlook everything, but we don't see that he is love and he is what? Just and gracious and merciful. All those things have to be seen together. That makes sense? We can't pull out one attribute of God and say that's who God is. That's not who God is. He is the whole. So we're going to look at some uh, questions uh, through the summer. Dave and I are going to take this series. Uh, next week, can I understand God? He's incomprehensible. Can I even understand God? Does God need me is one of the things we're going to do. Does God change his mind? Does God get angry? Does God really work all things out for good? That's a question that we know the truth to as believers. We say, oh, yeah, for sure. Roman 8, 28, I get it, right? Until until your life craters, and then you say what? Seriously? God, how in the world could you ever work this out for good? Can I hide from God? And can I really have a, per can I really have a personal relationship with God? Is he remote? Can I really have a personal relationship with him? Okay, as we kick off this series, I cannot think of a better place to start than Acts 17. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Let me set the context there. The Apostle Paul took three missionary journeys that we know of, may have started a fourth, took three missionary journeys, and in his second missionary journey, he goes and he takes the gospel to Europe for the very first time. Goes up to Philippi, goes to Thessalonica, gets in some trouble there, goes down to Berea, gets in some more trouble there. He goes to Athens and he's waiting on his traveling companions and he's checking out the city of Athens. Now, in the time that Paul was there, Athens had been a great world power, but it had declined a bit. Uh, other uh, countries had taken over the power of the world, but Athens was still the intellectual capital of the world. Uh, there was a great university there, the University of Athens, that was uh, founded by Plato in 387 B.C., and it lasted continually for 913 years, up until the 500 A.D., 916 years. So Athens is this intellectual capital. It also has this great architect, architecture, and Paul's walking around the city, but he cannot enjoy the architecture at all because every place he looks in Athens, there is an idol. There's a statue of a god. 
And it says in Acts 17, 16, that Paul's heart was stirred up within him when he saw Athens and he saw that they were serving all these gods, but not the real God, not the God of Scripture, not the God who is unchangeable. They're serving all these gods and his spirit was stirred up within him. So you know what Paul did? He went and complained on Facebook that Athens was going to hell in a handbasket. And then he put it on Instagram with some pictures of idols. Not quite, right? Look what he did in chapter 17, 17. He took action. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Think about what Paul did. He went to the Jews who knew the Old Testament and he reasoned with them from the Old Testament because Paul knew his Bible. He knew the Old Testament. Then he went to the marketplace and he reasoned with those who didn't know the Bible at all. They were biblically illiterate. You see, Paul didn't care who he was talking to. He knew how to engage them. And we'll see that he knew all about the, the secular poets of the day. And so he engaged people right where they are. Man, so that is so critical for us as we think about sharing the gospel. We have the opportunity to share the gospel. We have the opportunity to have our souls stirred up within us as we see people on a road to hell and we have the answer and we can go reason with them and we can talk with them regardless if they have biblical knowledge or not. We have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Now, I promise you, if, we, if it was raining like it's, it's very hot tonight, but if it was raining like crazy out there and, 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 and there was a bridge on, on the road and the rain washed away the bridge and you knew the bridge was washed away and there were cars coming to that washed away bridge and they were going to fall in the water, what would you do? I promise you, you would get your car, you would go up the road, and you would make sure everyone stopped on that road, right? Because your heart is stirred up within you. You don't want people going off into the bridge. But people around us are doing the same thing all the time. And we just sit and complain about masks and stuff going on in our lives. When we have the answer, if the bridge is washed out, well, let's stop people and reason with them. Go into the marketplace or the synagogues, remember, religious or non-religious, and interact with them. Now, during his conversations, he met up with two philosophical groups. We learn about them in chapter 17, verse 8, the Epicureans and the Stoics. We won't take a lot of time to drill down on what they, uh, what they believe because, at, because Luke, the writer, doesn't even care so much of what they believe. The Epicureans uh, uh, believed in uh, hedonism, basically. They, they believed you get this one life. They were atheists. You got this one life. You're not going to have an afterlife. And so just go for all the gusto you can get. We have a few people today who are not. They wouldn't say they're Epicureans, but they are, right? They, they, they believe that you just, you just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. The Stoics were those who said they didn't believe in an afterlife either, but they were pantheists. They believed God was in everything, everywhere and in everything. And uh, they believed in self-control and self-sufficiency and emotional stability. Uh, there are actually some popular books today written by Stoics. 
they believe that you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you just get disciplined and, and you figure it all out. Uh, their founder was a guy named Zeno, and he, he taught them at this, at this porch in Athens called the Stoa, and so they became named the Stoics, and we still see some of that today. So we got, this, we got people uh, believing the same things today, but, but Luke doesn't really care about that. You know what? Luke just says, here were two people Paul interacted with, and they were people trying to make sense of a world apart from God. That's what people are doing, aren't they? They're just trying to make sense of their world apart from God. And they go into materialism, pragmatism, secularism, humanism, just name it today. But that's all they're doing. We shouldn't, we shouldn't get on our spiritual high horse and judge them. They would be doing the exact same thing we would be doing had Jesus not interrupted our life. Just trying to make sense out of a world without God. And so Paul addresses them. And this is cool because as Paul has walked around, he's noticed they have this city of idols. And uh, if you go to Greece, go to the Parthenon here, and there's this hill. A lot of people think he went up to this hill. The, 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 he started telling the people about Jesus. And they, they said, now he's this, they called him uh, in Acts here, an idol babbler. Babbler is an interesting word. It means seed picker. It's a bird that goes around and picks a seed from here and a seed from here and a seed from here and puts them all together. Or, or a farmer, a poor farmer who would go to the market and just gather a bunch of seeds and plant these seeds and all kinds of crops would grow up. That's Paul says, your message, they said, your message, Paul, is like a seed picker. You're a babbler. You got all these different ideas coming together. You have these strange deities but we want to hear more about it because the people in Athens loved new ideas. They loved to talk about new ideas. didn't like to do a lot, but they loved to talk about new ideas. So go to Athens, there's the Parthenon, and you go up this hill right by it. There's this hill called Mars Hill, and it's thought that Paul went up to this hill. There were, that's where they went to debate, and, 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 the, and the stones are carved in the rock when you go up to Mars. I think we have some pictures of uh, the Parthenon, and we don't have a lot of time to look at them, but we have them. Don't worry about it. We'll look at them the next time. Um, we'll look at them next. There they are. It's Parthenon. That's the Parthenon today. You can see all the things. That's this, uh, Parthenon is this uh, temple uh, to Athena, the Greek goddess. And you can't see it, but right, uh, right on the other side here is Mars Hill. So Paul went up. So Paul's probably looking over the Parthenon as he's talking to these uh, Epicureans and Stoics and anyone else who gathered. And, and look at what Paul says in verse 22. So he goes up and says, you guys, I can't believe what you're doing, you pagans. I can't believe you think these idle thoughts, what are you doing? He doesn't say that at all, does he? He doesn't rip on them. He doesn't call them jerks. He says what? I perceive that in every way you're what? Very religious. I love that Greek word. That Greek word is made up of three words. Uh, the, word, the word fear, the word deities, and the word hard. You fear deities hard. <laughs> you, are, you are very religious. And he says, I walked around. I saw you're very religious. I saw all these idols. Man, there's not one that you missed. And in just in case you missed one, just in case you didn't get one, you even had an idol to, look at verse 23, the unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown? 
Paul says what? I want to proclaim to you. I want to tell you who this God is. And in the next verses, Paul gives eight attributes of God. We'll be drilling down on a lot of these as we go through the series. Eight attributes of God. They thought he was a babbler when, they, when he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And so he says, okay, I'm going to get to the same destination. I'm going to get back to Jesus and the resurrection, but I'm going to start at a different route. And I'm going to tell them who this unknown God is. Paul says, you got that idol to, to this unknown God. Let me, let me explain who he is. Look at these attributes. Number one, Paul says, this unknown God, he is actually the known God. He's the creator of all things. Look at 1724. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the creator of the world. The word for world there is cosmos. It doesn't just mean matter. It means, uh, it means the order of the universe. He makes the planets, the heavens, the earth, and everything in it, and he puts them in a system of order. That unknown God that you don't know about, he's actually the creator of all things. Paul says, secondly, he is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time in his full being. Look at verse 24b. He doesn't live in temples made by man. You have that big temple down there to Athena. But God doesn't live in a temple made by man. There's no temple in this world who could, who could, who could contain him. He is omnipresent. Number three, he is self-sufficient and independent. Look at verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything from man. In fact, man depends on him for everything. Look at the end of verse 25. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is the provider of all mankind. Number five, Paul says, this God that you think is unknown, let me tell you who he is. He is sovereign over all. Look at verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries and their dwelling places. This God is sovereign over all. He made all nations from one man, this man named Adam. He made all nations and he set the countries and he gave them their, their length of time that they would exist and he set the borders and the boundaries for the countries. He is sovereign over all. And yet this God who is sovereign over all, who is self-sufficient, who is omnipresent, who's the creator, you would think would be remote and distant, wouldn't you? But the opposite is true. God is personal. This great and awesome God desires that, look at verse 27, that they should seek him, that they should seek God, and perhaps Feel their way toward him. They're seeking him. Maybe they don't know who he is yet. The word means to grope. They're like groping in the darkness. They're feeling their way to God because in the human heart there is eternity set and every person knows that they need something beyond themselves. And so they're trying to figure out this world apart from God and God says if they look for him, they're going to find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Paul says, this is a God who is right here with us and he is waiting for you. 
to have this personal relationship with him. Even some of your prophets have said this, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. If we are the offspring of God and we are personal people, we're the offspring of God, this God who birthed us, he is a personal God as well. Even gets better. Look at verse 30. He is gracious. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. He overlooked your past. He's not going to hold your past against you in any way. He is gracious. But now he wants you to repent. He wants you to change directions. You're walking this way. He wants you to turn around. In the Hebrew language, the, the word repent meant to change action. In the Greek, it meant to change your mind. And so you put those two worlds together. Repent means to change your mind and to change your actions. You're going a different direction. This God wants you to repent, and he can provide that through the spiritual transformation that comes from him because he is also just. Look at verse 31. Chapter 17, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world, this God is just. Yes, he's all-loving, and yes, he's gracious, and yes, he's personal, but he's also the judge of all mankind, and he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world, and notice how he will judge it in righteousness by a man he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by what? Raising him from the dead. Now we're back to Jesus and what? The resurrection. That's where Paul started, but the people didn't understand that. And so he said, let me tell you who God is. This God who is just and the judge, and he judges us in one way, by righteousness, and that righteousness is only found in one person, in one place, and that is in Jesus, the man who he appointed to send to the earth and the man he raised from the dead. It always begins and ends with Jesus, doesn't it? I don't know. Uh, I don't know where you are, and I don't know what you're thinking about as we work through this time of life. I don't know where you are as you read Scripture and, and uh, confusion that you might have doing that. But I know this. When we begin to understand who God is, and that's going to be our goal over the next, over the next weeks, our, our whole purpose is this. Knowing God and being intimate with him. When we do that, then everything else changes. Our life becomes intentional about serving him. We become more bold about sharing him. But just to grow in our intimacy with God, to learn who he is. And then the scripture opens up because it's his story. Our purpose in life becomes clearer because he's writing our story. Our interaction with our kids become clearer because now we're 
have his mind as we try to do our best to raise our kids and point them in, in the right direction. So as we go through this opportunity to really understand who God is, this God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us on the cross. And, and, that, and that's where I want to end. You know, we come every week and, and interact and talk, even through our masks now, right? But I got to ask you this question. Do you really know Jesus? Do you really have a personal relationship with Jesus? Because as Paul talks about God, he says here, God, God's just. He's the judge overall. And one day, Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And you're going to stand before him. So can you say in your heart with, with just certainty, I will stand before this just judge, and he'll judge me righteously, not because of what I have done, but because of Jesus who died on a cross for my sins and my trust in him allows me to be justified. That word means to be declared righteous by the just God. Do you know that for sure? Have you trusted in Jesus alone? It's the only way, not a good way, not one of the many ways, but the only way to have a relationship with the living God. As we start this series, I'm going to challenge you to do that. In fact, I'm going to challenge you to do that right now. If you just bow your heads, if you haven't trusted in Christ, we're getting ready to sing a song about God's holiness. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, so holy that he would send Jesus. And just pray this prayer with me. Let this be your prayer. Not a repeated prayer, but your prayer. Heavenly Father, as we think about who you are, the creator, self-sufficient one, the just and gracious and merciful one, we know that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And I know you sent Jesus down the cross for my sins. Father, I don't want to continue to try to figure out life apart from you. I don't want to try to figure out how to make this all make sense apart from you, whose story this is. And so right now, I trust in Jesus as the only way to have this relationship with you, as the only way to know you, as the only way to truly understand your holiness, your greatness, your majesty. Right now, I trust in Jesus alone. And I pray in his name. Amen. As we get ready to sing this great hymn of the faith, if you've prayed that prayer or you'd like to know more about what it means to have this relationship with God, please let us know so we can help you get started on this journey with him so you can know God more intimately and truly make sense out of life in your life and the reason God placed you on this planet. Let's stand together and sing.